The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, I'm Ben Luke, and I'm outside Tate Modern for this special edition of the Art Newspaper Podcast. This week, it's all about Pablo Picasso. As so often before, the art world is in a Picasso moment. Last week, a dozen of his works were swept up by a single mysterious collector in the London auctions. And so, in a moment, we'll explore the artist's market with the gallerist Pilar Ordovas. If you look at the 20th century, who else can you call a genius and who reinvented himself so many times as Picasso did? I think it's very difficult to find any other artist that had that ability. But there's no doubt what the main event is. The exhibition Picasso 1932 opened to great acclaim last year at the Musée Picasso in Paris, and it's now arrived at Tate Modern in London. It tells the story of a single year in Picasso's life, 1932, one of great professional achievement and private turmoil. It was the year Picasso had a retrospective, then very rare for living artists, in Paris and Zurich, which confirmed him as the most famous artist in Europe. A partial reconstruction of the retrospective features in the exhibition. But most importantly, it was a year of feverish creativity. Picasso was impassioned by his affair with Marie-Thérèse Walter, which had begun five years earlier. Walter had appeared in his art initially in coded form, but in this period, the classical profile and curvaceous body with which Picasso was so obsessed burst into his work. But he was also living the bourgeois life with his wife Olga and son Paolo in their apartment on Rue La Boétie near the Champs-Élysées. The family lived in immaculately decorated downstairs rooms. Picasso painted upstairs. The photographer Brassai, who visited the Picassos in Paris in September 1932, described the family home as one of the centres of society life. He described the studio as a pigsty. But as the truly remarkable show at Tate Modern proves, many masterpieces poured from that mess in 1932, and I explored some of them with Akim Borchardt-Hume, director of exhibitions at Tate Modern and one of the curators of the show. Akim, we're actually in the middle of the exhibition, but I think this is almost a prelude to what comes afterwards because we're actually in Guadeloupe when Picasso was making this extraordinarily dynamic series of sculptures. Tell, tell me about this period and its importance in terms of, uh, if you like, the personalities that are in this show in terms of Marie-Thérèse Walter. Well, I think um, 1932 in many ways is characterised by a series of conversations. One of them is the conversation between painting and sculpture. In 1930, um, Picasso had bought a small, what is called grandly a chateau, a country house, 60 kilometers north of um, Paris in a village called Gisor, a place called Boisjadou. And in this um, house, he, um, which you have to picture of non-heated, um, very lovely, there's one tower which you could stay in, he had a painting studio there, but one of the key um, attractions was that there was a row of stables, one of which he converted into a sculpture studio. Now, Picasso, at various moments of his career, was engaged in sculpture um, during his Cubist period, in the 1920s, in a surrealist moment, but now something altogether together different happened. So he made these sculptures, which are um, very rounded, very voluminous, very solid, um, quite sexual, you feel like you would like to caress them, but then you don't know whether that's a bit inappropriate, <laughs> because everywhere there are things that sort of stick out and protrude. And um, the sense is very much that he actually, at this moment in time, translates the memory of a real physical encounter. So his encounter with his much younger um, lover, girlfriend, Marie-Thérèse Walter, into this set of sculptures, which then plays a key role in his painting of 1932. So... In front of us is a, a re- remarkable cement 
bust yeah. of Mary Therese. And it shows almost, it, there's a certain immediacy about this which reflects it, that, like, that intensity of feeling that he was experiencing at that moment. Well, I think one of the things which occurs is Picasso's relationship to time and to the art of the past. So this is almost like a going back to what is classical sculpture and how would you reinvent it today. So there is Marie-Therese Walter, who is uh, famous in all the descriptions for her Greek profile, so that, yet, so that she had this continuous line between her forehead and her nose. It's, of course, not a real likeness. He um, hugely accentuates part of her features, and she has this very... Um, uh, static, um, stoic way of looking out into somewhere. Now, we're going to go into a, the next room now, so let's... Um, now, we're in a room of paintings he made in January. In fact, we're standing opposite some works now, three paintings made in three days of quite astonishing variety. Tell us about these. Yes, it's an extraordinary moment in January where the main subject matter is a seated woman in the armchair. Picasso describes the armchair as a symbol of either death or protection, so that it is this very ambiguous uh, relationship. Um, now, at some point in mid-January, this extraordinary thing happens where um, three paintings, rest, sleep and dream, are made on three consecutive uh, days. They have a very different mood. Rest is quite disturbing, anything but rest. It's as though the figure is actually spiraling around its own belly button. In the center of the picture of the painting is this black dot, which almost seems absurd to put that there, but it's like the vortex around which everything else turns. Then in the next painting in sleep, you have the figure, her head uh, thrown back, um, one of her breasts in the space under her hand almost form an M, as if it were a sign for Marie-Therese Walter, that she is the model in the um, painting. And in the next one, again, you have this figure sitting in the armchair now with her um, hands rested in her lap, her dress slightly slipping off, almost like an antique uh, sculpture, as if a, dra a drapery were coming off, her head tilted, and her head is divided, one half looking like a penis. So there's this sort of strange sense of that one thing which Picasso wants to do is he recognizes that he's the man and there's the woman and they are, have this gulf between them. But he wants to find a way of how you can really come together. And I think it's not just that he wants to come together with a woman. I think almost he wants to become the woman for this moment. <clears throat> there's a really interesting association that Picasso has at this time with the Surrealist group in the sense that they would love to have him as part of the group, but he resists ever formally joining them. Yeah. But, but he has an interest in surrealism. Yes. And, and, and it's in this room, I think, you really sense that balance of his interest in irrationality on the one hand, in the, in, in the painting Rest, but also L'Amour Fou in terms of Marie Therese. Can you, can you tell me about, about his engagement with surrealism and how much in these paintings he's playing out some of those scenes? So surrealism was a very complex um, affair for um, Picasso because actually he had um, at some point commissioned Apollinaire to write about his work much earlier and that's the first time that um, Apollinaire used the term surrealism but as Picasso um, explained later on he had understood something completely different from what the group later on defined as being surrealism. I think the um, sort of love 
uh, hate relationship with surrealism for Picasso was on the one hand, um, at this stage he was quite isolated, so he was a single famous artist who everybody wants to get close to, and he missed the company of his early life in Paris. So Cubism with Prague, um, the sort of whole companionship of a group of artists, and I think that made surrealism very attractive. On the other hand, surrealism was quite a dicey proposition because they were also interested in politics. They liked to be a little bit uh, controversial. Um, they um, played with sort of what was acceptable or not. And Picasso was extremely nervous at this point in time to do anything which would harbor a risk of being accused of um, agitating French people, which would mean that he could be expelled from uh, yeah. France back into uh, Spain. But I think most crucially, he just simply didn't believe that you could write a manifesto or you could formulate a theory, whether it is in life or in art, as to what you were going to do. Um, what you do comes through doing it. Right. It's not possible to say, it's going to be this, you may think that that is where you're heading. What it's going to be in the end, there are so many things outside your control that in the end the final result may be a surprise even to the makeup. And that attitude really appears in the paintings around us, doesn't it? Because, yes. it, you know, this, this, this is all made in January, this stuff. And yet behind us here is a work that couldn't be further yes. away from dream. I mean, I think one of the things which is so um, impressive and perhaps sometimes also for us infuriating is that um, Picasso has this um, almost boundaryless trust in experience and to go with it. So I think where many of us are trained to say, well, you can't do that. Um, I may be enjoying that, but maybe not. Or um, he doesn't do that. He just lives with the outcome of it and all the contradictions that um, uh, demonstrates. And he accepts that that is the contradiction of being uh, human. But so this sense of reliance, of experience, is the fundamental principle of his art making. How, how much credence do you give to the idea that rest is absolutely a depiction of Olga and the uh, dream is absolutely a picture of Mary Therese? Was he fusing certain attitudes or was, were his attitudes quite concrete in the work towards the people in his life? Well, I think if they are... So are those two women becoming almost like... Uh, symbols or chiffres for the relationship between men and women, yes, because I think most people will find that in their personal relationships, um, they're probably uh, irritated by what they want, they uh, have good moments, bad moments um, and Picasso clearly has a relationship to women where he wants them but they also annoy him when they make demands and it's not such uncommon uh, stuff really. Um, I think, are they depictions in the sense of he's really showing his wife and he's really showing Marie-Therese Walter? No, I don't think so. Because neither one of them is in the studio, neither one of them is present. They are becoming symbols for something which is um, a much bigger theme, which I think is this fundamental sense of, if I am this, then what is that other? Yeah, And I think one of the things that we, we know is that Yes, we now look at a picture of Mary Therese and we know who it is and we, we will we'll name her. Sure. But she actually wasn't even a publicly known name connected to no. Picasso until, was it the 50s even? Yes, I mean, I think one of the key things was that their relationship was completely secret, um, that um, they both were very happy with that. She was very happy with that. It was a complete um, contrast to um, Olga Picasso, 
who really loved being Madame Picasso. So she loved appearing in the newspaper, being um, uh, commented on that she had been to a theatre premiere or that they had um, attended an event together. They were a celebrity couple. Marie-Therese Walter was the very opposite. And of course, one of the striking things was while he's making these paintings, she's a complete secret. When these paintings appear in the retrospective exhibition of summer 1932, the secret is out. Because while people may not know who she is, they certainly can all see that she exists. Now we're in a, a room which is dominated by works that Picasso made in March of 1932. And in front of us there's a group of four large paintings which I calculated were made in less than a week that seems to me an astonishing level of activity tell me about what what was happening with Picasso at this moment well one of the things which was so interesting working on this exhibition was to try and understand better how did Picasso actually work so I always think like if you encounter an artist and you think like how do you get up in the morning do you go to the studio is it a regular routine what's your um, little trick of how you set yourself off to work what became apparent is that Picasso really works in spurts so when he does something and when he is in a moment of invention he um, does it a number of times so it's not a singular painting it's always a group of paintings um, this one is particularly extraordinary because of their ambition in terms of um, scale color composition complexity of the image itself but again also the relationship between the painting the sculpture and the model so you see um, a depiction of one of these um, heads made in Boisgelou in 1931 and the head is now clearly looking at the live model who is lying beneath um, asleep they don't make eye contact. She's asleep, she's got her eyes closed, the head is looking elsewhere. They are connected by um, what is perhaps the most lively element of the whole painting, which is a philodendron plant, which is a symbol which is hugely important uh, to Picasso throughout this moment of time. And then curiously, as you walk through this group of paintings, the sculpture slowly disappears, the woman begins to wake up, then she turns around, you can see her front and back, and eventually she stands up and actually looks at herself. And, and, and next to it is another painting of a sleeping figure, the same figure, Mary Therese again. And again there's the philodendron. But, but the arrangement is, is very different, isn't it? So, so there's this, there's this um, wonderful interplay between the forms that he's making. There's a sort of um, incredible calm about it, given how fast he's working at the same time. Tell me about how the evolution of the, the forms was, was taking place on the canvas. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really great things about exhibitions and easy to forget is, of course, that you can see things close together which usually are worlds apart. So these two paintings live in private collections in very different parts of the world. Now you can see them next to one another. And the most striking thing is how, despite all similarities in subject matter, so the reclining nude, the philodendron plant, the color scheme of the lilac flesh and the blue in the background, how very different they are. So the first one, nude green leaves and bust, has this intensely worked surface, very thick um, lines, very um, 
active, energetic paint work, lots of overpainting, lots of structure in the paint. One of the most curious details in the whole composition is the fact that the second nipple has been painted out, so a very odd moment in the painting um, itself. Somewhere you see this profile of the bust of Picasso himself drawn into the paintwork. The next painting, three days later, completely different. So there's a reclining nude again, the same lilac surface, the same blonde hair, the same philodendron in the background, but suddenly the surface is completely smooth. It's as though the paint just flows um, in the sort of shape of the body across um, the canvas. And that generates an altogether different mood. And that's the astonishing thing about this exhibition, isn't it? It's not just the sheer volume of work that Picasso was producing. It's the different registers he's able to call on. He, he achieves such a variety of mark, a variety of form. It's, it's, an, it's, it's such something that's quite astonishing to behold. Yes, I think, I think it's extraordinary. I think one of the things which Picasso, of course, suffers from is that the real-life story is so um, intriguing and it's so fantastic, like out of a gossip magazine, <laughs> that it's quite hard to actually look back at the work. When you look at the work itself, you begin to realize again why we are actually interested even in the gossip story. And it's, of course, only because he's such an unbelievable artist and makes these paintings, which um, every single one is like a mini-revolution and like a firework. And so he goes from one to the next and thinks, let me try again and let me do it differently this time. You can't look at these pictures without thinking about Picasso's famous rivalry with Matisse. He's on Matisse's territory here, isn't he? Yes, I mean, I think they are on each other's territory. They're also on a shared territory against um, the rest of the world. So I think what um, both unites Matisse and Picasso is, A, they are artists who really maintain the um, height of their game throughout their career. Um, they recognize that in each other. Um, I think they are artists who are as interested in the art of the past, so the great tradition of Western art making and particularly Western painting. They're both very interested in the relationship between um, painting and sculpture. They're both very interested in female models. Um, everybody knows this about Picasso. People realize this far less about Matisse, but of course he had models in the studio all the time. And um, both have this very strong sense that it will be eroticism that will secure the enduring um, value of making paintings that in the face of all the other things that are going on, abstraction um, constructivism far more political art, surrealism with its diving into the subconscious I think they um, are steadfast to say this thing of making paint, of applying paint to a surface has a place and the place comes out of what is our experience of touch and how does it relate to the eye one of the things that there's, there's almost like a false dichotomy that's been created about, you know, almost uh, as if Picasso's continuing the disegno tradition and Matisse's colore. Those distinctions are, don't hold water when you see these works. No, I think one of the things which is so interesting in the um, exhibition when you look at the paintings across the year is actually how accomplished the colorist Picasso really is. There's one group of paintings which um, I always think of as almost the ice cream colors. They're quite pastely. They're quite odd, actually. 
Um, they're very daring in their choice how to construct a picture, particularly his use of green, which is always a really, really difficult color for painters. Then there are others which become these very saturated color harmonies, like the March paintings. And then, of course, fascinatingly, towards the end of the year, drawing and paint color completely drift apart and I think that has something to do with the mood of anxiety that fuels Picasso's personal life but also the state of the world at that moment. So we're now in the final room of the show and and in front of us is a painting called The Rescue. It's one of a number of paintings he made with the same title and the mood is palpably different, especially from January and March, I'd say. Yes, I mean, it's a very different um, type of image now. A, it has a storyline, so it's no longer this very um, placid, restful uh, figure that we were used to in the first half of the year. Um, Curiously enough, though, the figure, who now appears three times over, has the same profile that you could see in some of the Bordeloux sculptures and in some of the earlier paintings in which we generally associate with Marie-Thérèse Walter. Now, oddly, this figure in this painting is both the rescuer, so she's lifting another figure, she's the rescuee, so she's rescuing herself. But then, most surprisingly of all, she's also like a siren at the bottom of the painting in the water as though she's hauling the figure that is being rescued back into the water. So you think, of course, what's going on? Who is rescuing who? Who is perpetrator? Who is victim? Um, no men in the picture. There's uh, women. Um, the painting itself is a very different um, affair in terms of making. The surface is now almost like wax crayon. It's sort of very crackly and uh, um, this very odd type of um, green with the uh, white flowers main font. Has he, scra- he scraped it back a bit? It's it. actually not scraped. So one of the things which is very fascinating throughout the show is um, that many of the paintings are not painted with a brush but they're painted with a spatula, so with a little uh, tool to put paint directly onto the canvas. So it's almost a little bit more like as if you were um, sculpting, as if you were making a plaster. So paint becomes um, plaster work. The biographical explanation usually is to say that at the end of 1932, Marie-Thérèse Walter had this tragic um, uh, incident where she went swimming in the River Mount. She was a very strong swimmer. Picasso could not swim, was very attracted to her sort of athletic press that she went swimming in the River Marne and she attracted a virus infection, which meant that she lost her hair. So she lost one of the uh, great symbols of her youth and uh, attraction to him as a man. And, of course, in the painting, you no longer see the tuft of blonde hair that appeared in all the other ones. But I think it's also a very curious thing that um, at the end of that year, there was a film which was enormously popular by Jean Renoir, um, Boudou or um, The Drowning, um, which showed this uh, guy who was re- rescued from the River Seine, who then um, moves into the house of a bookseller who rescues him, and who basically demands the whole hypocrisy of bourgeois morality, of uh, people having marriages, um, who they present to the outside world, meanwhile having affairs. It's done in a brilliant way. At some point in the film, the bookkeeper finds, a, uh, the bookseller finds a book um, about marriage which somebody has spat in and he doesn't know whether it's his unwanted visitor or his wife who's doing the spitting. All stuff which I think Picasso would have loved at that moment in time where no doubt now that Marie-Thérèse Walter had become visible even if not known his marriage must have been 
far more tense than it had been already. And quite quickly after this painting, so this painting was made in November of 1932, quite quickly the political mood in Europe got very dark, didn't it? And yes. you, you feel that this yes. hugely affected how Picasso went Yes, forward. I mean, I think one of the curious things is that towards the end of the years, you have these statements by Picasso where he says, I know full well that I will not fit with the um, advocates of Nietzsche's Superman, that's not me, I cannot make and I do not want to make political art, that's not me either, I just will do uh, only my own thing. So he feels increasingly at odds. And of course, at the end of, uh, or in autumn 1932, when his retrospective exhibition had traveled from Paris to Zurich, Jung, the psychoanalyst, um, wrote an article about Picasso in which he um, likened him to one of his schizophrenic patients. Now, in 1933, um, when Hitler came to power in Germany, very soon after, the first exhibitions began to happen, well before the one, famous one in Munich, um, of degenerate art, so equating modern art with degenerate art. Picasso was aware that, in a way, he was a symbol for all of this. Akin, thank you so much. Pleasure. The EY exhibition, Picasso 1932, Love, Fame, Tragedy, is at the Tate Modern until 9th of September. Now, until Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi sold for $450 million last year, the most expensive painting to be sold at auction was Picasso's Women of Algiers. It sold for $179 million at Christie's in 2015. And the demand for Picasso at auction shows no signs of abating. Last week, a single mystery buyer snapped up 12 Picassos at Christie's and Sotheby's sales in London. They included a 1937 portrait of a woman, an amalgam of Marie Therese and Picasso's other mistress at that time, the photographer Dora Maar. That sold for £49.8 million. We felt this was a good moment to speak to a dealer who has sold Picasso's works about his market. Pilar Ordovas was at Christie's for 13 years, becoming international director and deputy chair of post-war and contemporary art in Europe. She then spent two years at Gagosian before starting her own London gallery. I went there to talk to her. Pilar, Picasso worked in very defined periods. Does that help his market? I think the fact that his periods are very defined. He, even during his lifetime, there was a catalogue resume in preparation. And it is very clear for anyone that is looking at Picasso what he did and what there is. It, of course, makes it a lot easier from a market point of view and from a commercial point of view, because there are no unknowns or undefined so it becomes much more tangible and it seems obvious that there are particular periods that collectors are more attracted to than others what are those it's really interesting that as well of course as time is evolving those periods are increasing and changing traditionally speaking i mean and not that long ago 20 years ago when i started um, working in this market the earlier periods um, Blue Period Picasso, Rose and Cubism were the much more desirable periods. Now, I mean, of course, because the rarity of these works is such that they never, almost never appear into the market, other periods have become much more prominent. Um, for example, I would say the period dedicated to Maria Therese, it is considered now as one of the most sensual um, periods of his work and those paintings have become some of the most desirable and highest value. For example, as well, when I first started, his late period 
was not very desirable. Um, it was very difficult commercially when I was at auction to sell those works. They were seen as late. They did not have the strength or the beauty of some of the earlier work. And now that has been completely readdressed through exhibitions, both at museums and galleries. And it's actually highlighted the power and the genius of reinventing himself even to the end of his life. So those works that before were highly undesirable now are very highly desired. Now in 2014 you sold a very rare drawing, a self-portrait drawing from uh, his blue period. So the absolute sort of earliest true Picasso period that we think of. Can you tell me about that experience, how you were able to track down the work and what the response was from collectors. Um, this work is actually the first time that Picasso calls himself Picasso. It's a study for the very, very famous painting, Yo Picasso, which really marked a huge change in his work in 1901. That's right, because before then he was signing his works, Ruiz Picasso, his, his Absolutely. Uh, in Spain, we used two surnames, our fathers and our mothers, and he decided to drop his fathers because Picasso obviously sounded a lot better and much more exotic than Ruiz, that is quite a, a common surname in Spain. <laughs> um, this, this drawing actually appeared at auction when I was working at auction. It was a great discovery at the time. It was a double-sided drawing. So on one side there was um, a scene of Paris and on the other side the artist had painted himself um, and called himself Picasso and was looking at himself in the eyes. And this was a preparatory drawing for perhaps one of the most iconic and famous paintings. So a collector that I held bought it at the time um, and is someone that I've been helping and been very close to for many years. So I was doing an exhibition dedicated to self-portrait and I showed the work and it was the first time it was shown in public in this country. And did you notice a big response from collectors? I noticed a huge response from collectors and the general public. This was such a brave move of a very young artist. We forget that he was not even 20 when he did this. And to be so brave as to put himself out there, to just say, here I am, Picasso, nothing else, and it's no explanation. Today it seems... It doesn't seem so important, but at the time, he was a young artist. He had not created so much of a name or a reputation for himself. He was exactly doing that. And I think what we see with him, which transpires and has transpired all times and created the strength of his market, is that if you look at the 20th century, who else can you call a genius? And who reinvented himself so many times as Picasso did? I think it's very difficult to find any other artist that had that ability. Now, in the Tate show, we were really made aware of just how productive he was. Now, if he is in demand in the market, and yet his supply is so incredibly vigorous and continuous... Does that affect his market at all, or is Picasso, does Picasso buckle the trend of supply and demand that we expect from the market? Well, I think it's, it's a very, very important point that you touched upon. When you create, when someone creates a market, you have to have enough supply of quality to feed that market. Because you have, you can have a lot of interest, for example, in Leonardo da Vinci, but there are no others. <laughs> so as much interest as you have, it's impossible to create that market. With Picasso, this is one of the very good points in his market. There is the quality and the supply 
Of course, it, this could work against any artist if they overproduce. Um, that is much harder. But in the, in his case, the fact that you mentioned before, everything is very clear. There is a catalog resonant that records all the work. We know that there were some works which he kept in his own family, which are known as Picasso's Picassos. They are also recorded, very well recorded. So what I mean is that we don't have surprises that suddenly there are going to be a hundred new works that appear that we didn't know about. So the fact that there is such order and um, in his market does help it. And the fact that there is the supply to keep feeding that market is important. The other point that I would like to make is that not every Picasso is worth the same. And the market does distinguish in between rarity and quality and provenance and many other factors. The Tate Show focuses on 1932. Does that mean that only works from that period leap up in value or will this affect Picasso's market in general? The works from 1932 already command incredibly high prices. Um, They have had a huge focus in his body of work since many years. This is not anything new. I think the Tate Show is highlighting just a reality. Um, This period is seen as one of his most central um, and where he created some of the most beautiful images. It also marks the beginning of the Spanish Civil War and a highly political period. So there are so many things going on that affect the way he's painting and his work. We see you know, a very different woman appearing in these paintings from his wife Olga, in which you have the neoclassical style. And, you know, he is changing his style. There is a new woman. There is also a lot of political turmoil and perhaps one of the most important periods in European history. So therefore, this is why the Tate has chosen to focus on this period. Is this going to make any changes commercially? I think those changes are already there. Um, it's only highlighting something that we all know, but it's a- actually a treat to be able to see it and to, to have you know, to have it in London, frankly. There have been a number of shows dedicated to this period in the States and in other places, but never in London before. One of the things about Picasso is that there's a he has a very sort of powerful estate. They're very visible uh, on the François Gio side and on the uh, Marie-Thérèse Walter side. So, so there are different family members. So that it, if there is an active estate in that way... Is that, does that help an artist's market? Does that help dealing with in works of that artist or does it not affect it? I think in the case of Picasso, we have so many different factors that do help. You have an active state that is also very well organised. You do know exactly who you need to go to and which committee you need to approach for a body of work or another body of work. And without that seal of approval and that authority, you can't offer any of those works. So there is a very clear process. It's also a state that has works um, because we do have some very ordered states in which it's a market that is very important but is really dried up. There are no works. There's hardly any movement. So the fact that we have a catalogue resonance established during the artist's time a publication recording all the Picassos that were his and that he kept and were not recorded in his catalogue resume. The family have organised um, a committee and they look at, you know, there are some fractions of the family that are particularly known for looking at drawings, for looking at sculpture, for being scholar. I think all of this absolutely helps his market. 
because it's very clear. And for anyone that is in that market, you know exactly who you need to talk to and who you need to approach. Um, whereas in other markets, perhaps there is no authority, there is no one from the family, there is no archives. And that makes it a lot harder to establish, could this be a discovery, could it not? Um, or we want to know more about this body of work. With Picasso, there are, there are so many studies, um, which even happened during his lifetime. I mean, we now think of artists doing the catalog resonance during their lifetime as something not so unusual. But it was quite unusual. I mean, Bacon did record a part of his work, for example, but a great part of his work was not even recorded during his lifetime. Lucien Freud never wanted a catalog resonance. So now with certain early works that haven't been shown very often, we can't even track the whereabouts. So it is very rare that he had... I think he was so aware of himself and what he was doing and what he was achieving um, that he did things that artists haven't done prior to him. Pilar, thank you very much. Pleasure, thank you. Pilar Ordovas's current exhibition, London Painters, featuring Francis Bacon, David Hockney and Lucian Freud, among others, is on until the 28th of April. And that's it for this week. You can read more about the Picasso sales and the Tate exhibition online at theartnewspaper.com and in the current print edition. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Art Newspaper and on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>